welcome to Meet the PAs podcast. Hear the experiences of seasoned PAs, up and coming development of policy from industry leaders, and the exploration of those new to the career. Interviews done with a Canadian twist at Maple Syrup. podcast. Today we have MPP Bill Walker here and you are the conservative representative for Owen Sound. Bruce Gray Owen Sound. Bruce yes. Gray Owen Sound. So welcome. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure and I'm told I'm the first so this you, is an honor. Yeah, you yes. are the first politician we have on. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Okay, so we would like to start out by just asking you to give everybody a basic summary of your current position and what led you to this place in your career. Sure, happy to. So I started off as a recreation director, so I've always kind of been in the people and health and kind of the proactive health side of things. I worked for Heart and Stroke Foundation. I worked for Bruce Pinsley Health Services Foundation as the executive director to raise money for health care. And then I worked at Bruce Power in communications, and then I ended up as a politician. Uh, I've ran two elections now, so I'm in kind of my six and a half year. Obviously, there's an election on June the 7th, so and I'm hoping to be back doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my whole idea is, is I'm a people person, I'm a community I've always been very active and very involved, uh, you know, coaching and in community type of things. I'm a fundraiser, if you will. I'm an auctioneer, so I do fundraising for charities. So it's always kind of what can I do to make my my community better, mm. and how can I put the, the, whatever talents I may have back into to the community. So I uh, ran a number of years ago, uh, have been in opposition, so I've never served in government, so I've been in the official opposition with the PCs, hoping that changes in, in June and have a chance <laughs> on the other side of the floor and see how some of that works. And frankly, that's some of your questions will, will go there because it, it really is a mindset of being in opposition because you're challenging the government and holding them accountable as opposed to being on the other side because we really don't get the intricacies of how government truly operates and why they do certain things policy-wise or don't do. So until you're in there and really in the back rooms, it's tough to sometimes say, I'll do this or I'll do this because I don't know all the intricacies. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Fair. Fair. We don't. That interesting that you say that because um, we don't I'm know the interc- intricacies either. <laughs> well, and, and why, what I mean by that, there could be reasons for a policy because again, when, when I came in as a new politician six and a half years ago, I assume whenever there's going to be a significant change, whether it be healthcare or any any of our. Uh, portfolios that they would give you a briefing and say here's where we are here's where we're going here's Mm -hmm. the rationale here's why we're spending xy dollars or not Uh, but they really don't do that now as you're there you build better uh, relationships with certainly the ministers although ministers change and then the, the staff and you know we often call them bureaucrats but um, and that's not a derogatory term. Some are really, really good and really open and expressive with you. Others are much more guarded, and, mm-hmm. and, and it becomes a bit of a partisan thing. We can't tell you that. It's almost like top-secret information. And I always approach them when I ask for a minister's briefing and say, don't treat me like the enemy. My job is, as official opposition is to hold you to account. That's, mm-hmm. that's the role that official opposition is. But I can work with you, and I can be a good advocate if you actually share information with me and tell me why you're going down a path. So, yeah. for example, something like home care, for example, mm-hmm. is something I believe is a good system, and it is what we need. We can't have everybody in an institutional setting like a hospital no. or, or even a long-term care facility, frankly. But you need to make sure it's staffed properly and it's resourced properly and you have the people. In, in your world of physician assistants, you know, what... Why hasn't the government done an assessment of what the value that you bring to the system and how many more could we have? What more, many more do we need? How could they be integrated into the system in a better manner? Um, so if they don't share that with me, I'm really at a loss. Right, if yeah. they don't really have a game plan of how many they have. I just met with some medical students on Wednesday in my office in Queen's Park. 
And, and they were very concerned, again, about the, the number of residencies that were available across Canada. There's less There's residency less. spots than there Absolutely. are medical there are. So, so that doesn't make sense to me. And again... What I don't are, think it makes sense to anyone. <laughs> I hope not, anyways. No. You and, shouldn't be graduating more medical students than there are... Well, specifically. And, and, and I said, even, even then take it into a more granular... Why are we grad? Not that I would ever hold someone back. If they said, I absolutely want to be a, an XYZ specialist and we only need 10 of them and there's already 12, why would you take that? I would never restrict someone from following that career path. But you might want to put information saying, but there's a thousand jobs over here in this specialty. Right. Why wouldn't we go there? Right. And, I'll, and I'll be very honest. I mean, again, when I came into government my first year, I assumed that that was one of the primary roles that government would have had well in hand of saying, here's how many GPs we have. Here's how many orthopedic surgeons we have. Here's how many nurses we have. And here's what we're going to need going forward, knowing how many people are going to retire each year, and you know, at least on a, on a generic mindset. Yeah. Um, and they don't do that. And I'm, I'm baffled by that because then again, we're producing people and careers that we that we either don't need or they're never going to find employment and then you hear the horrific stories of someone's taking all that education and you know they're doing and I won't say an occupation because I don't mean it in a derogatory sense but they're not doing what they want to do so why would we do that and why would we not have a plan to say we need again nurse uh, physician assistants uh, nurse nurses, whatever nurse practitioners because I think we you know we've got a system and people get entrenched in their in their mindset of what we have and uh, particularly you know some demographics are very set that this is the way it always was I had my own my own general practitioner my mom ended up with a nurse, nurse practitioner nurse practitioner yeah and it took a bit of her to, to, to be comfortable at first right but yeah. then she kind of came and said Bill who cares right like I'm getting the service I need I'm getting the care I need yes I traditionally had it my own doc and and he was there for 25 or 30 years right so you get a comfort level yeah but I, I think, you know, even she, and sadly she passed away at, at 86, but, you know, so she was probably late 70s when this all transpired. And it took her a little bit of adjustment. But once she saw the care she was getting, she didn't really care about titles. Right, yeah, She exactly. wanted to care about, could I get in in a, in a timely manner? Was I, was I comfortable with the person? And was I getting the care that I felt I needed? So yeah. I look at it in a very similar manner to your profession. Would, would people care once you promote it and, and they actually have interaction with you and see the type of level of care? And I think healthcare is one of those things. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons that I have always focused on healthcare. Whether you're political or not political, you care about healthcare. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and at the end of the day, you want the care when you need it. You don't necessarily want to be, I mean, for a specialist, there's, you, you will be willing to travel, but, but for your localized care, you want it close to home. You want it to be convenient to you and you want timely access. Right. And I go back again to my first, your first question about being a, a physical guy, a, you know, a, a recreationist. It's always the preventative mindset. Keep people healthy as mm-hmm. opposed to trying to fix them mm-hmm. once they're sick. Absolutely. So I yep. approach my whole, you know, uh, kind of career that way, regardless of what, what job I'm working in, and saying how do we spend money up front as an investment yep. that I think is, is much better money invested than trying to fix someone after they've, they've gotten sick. So I think we have to look at the mel- meshing of all of the different health sector careers and say, what's the best fit? And it, and it, and it won't be rationalized, uh, sort of rationed, uh, rationed. It will be, what's best for community A? Mm-hmm. And, and that may not be identical to community B. And, you know, I look at extreme northern Ontario. How you provide care and when you have to fly into a native reserve is much different than Bruce Gray on Sound. Yep. And that's much different than Toronto or London, where you yep. have, again, the masses. So I look at things from a balance, or try to look at things from a balance perspective of, how many resources do we have? How many resources do we need? And you can project some of this type of thing. Uh, telling someone that they have to wait 18 months for a hip replacement 
uh, in my mind, is just not where we should be. Uh, that 18 months, what happens over that 18 months, how much worse does it get? The fear uh, and, and the pain and the anxiety, most importantly for the patient. Yeah. Why would we put them through that? So again, how we utilize the resources within our system, I think has to be looked at and, and put always, there's lots of buzzwords about patients first. Yeah. Yeah. But do we truly do, do, we that? do that? Do we actually do our actions actually exemplify what our words say? And that's where I look at having never been in government. There could be some things that, that limit that, or there's reasons why. But explain that to me, and then let's fix it. Yeah, like if you don't have the full story, you don't have you can't you know, come up with a good plan. So when when these conversations are happening in Toronto, uh, they're they're very limited conversations. You're getting it, that that whole picture is not being put together then on anybody's level that you're aware of. Not well. I, I, again, I can't say from the government side because yeah. I don't know how much. I mean, there, there's a large number of staff. There, you know, healthcare is a huge um, portfolio of ministry. But I don't know how much and where those because I'm not engaged in those. The only way I really get engaged is if I walk across in the chamber and talk to the minister on a very specific yeah. item that typically is is from my writing saying you know. Sally Smith can't get an X, Y, Z, why is that? Or they send okay. me a letter saying I need to understand why not, and I do that. Or if something comes out in a, in a significant change, then I will ask for a minister's briefing. So okay. typically a deputy minister or, or, or someone within the bureaucracy at a senior level or, or a staff will come in and give you a very uh, focused briefing on that little piece of the pie. Okay. Um, but again, that, you know... Healthcare is huge, as you both know. Yep. So again, it's a, it's a daunting thing to be a, up on top of every single piece of that mm -hmm. ministry. So it typically is if someone has, you know, how, how my world works is if someone from my riding comes and says, again, I can't get a hip or knee replacement or I can't get in to see a specialist or I can't find. One of the big things is rare disease drugs yeah. or specialized drugs. And often a family comes in because they're very costly, but that's the only thing for their child or their grandchild. Mm -hmm. So then you go very specifically to the minister saying, why won't you? And then I try to never just leave it at the isolated one person case because there's families across the province. Yeah. Why would we not be doing this? Mm -hmm. So then you again, and, and over time you build relationships with the ministers and you and, and their staff, frankly. Yeah. And, and Anna, who I spoke to you about in my office, my executive assistant, she again establishes those. So then you can have a much better free flow and you can get more answers about a specific area. Uh, but on the highest level, when I was using the example of those students that came to see me, what is the system? Where, where's the system going? What's the mindset of the current day government of, of how they're going to uh, adopt to this? Because one of the, the biggest stats that from the day I walked through the legislature's doors, by 2030, 80 cents of every dollar will go to health care if we keep going down the same path we currently used six years ago. Well, that means 20 cents to run every other industry, every other department, every other ministry of government. Yeah. Uh, that's great if you're in healthcare as the two of you are. It's a nice number, but, but it's not. Well, not really. It's not, not no, really. I, I'm being facetious, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but that means 20 cents to run all of our schools, all of our environmental programs, our roads, our bridges, everything. Yeah, we can't everything. do that. No. We, we can't. So you have to look at health care. And I think one of your questions was, you know, do you support, will you will you be a proponent of, or it may not be your words, my words, um, of physicians. So, so my, my answer again, it's challenging to say yes unequivocally because no. I don't know why or why not it hasn't progressed further. I don't know the limitations. And I don't know, again, until I'm on the other side, to truly see mm -hmm. how the systems work and the budget's attached. Because mm -hmm. it's easy to say yes to everything. Right. Yeah. Right. But as we were discussing right. before we went on air, someone has to pay the freight on every decision that's made. So yeah. so the point for mine would be, let's take a good look at it. And Jeff Yurk is our health critic. Um, I, you know, Jeff would be a, a lead in that area if he was to be deemed the minister if we were to form government. And then you start looking at all of the pieces. But I, I think what I could say comfortably for our caucus 
is we're open to looking at anything. And if it can improve the healthcare system, mm -hmm. and if that means a reallocation of resources and a reallocation of, of mindset and strategy, and you're providing value to the system, which, by the way, when you first met with me, it, it, that's how I kind of approached it was, wow, uh, I think one of your questions, when did you first hear about it? I might have heard something of, of the name, mm -hmm. but I certainly had never had the in-depth discussion that I had with you to really appreciate and understand. And, and you gave me good examples of other jurisdictions that use physician's assistants much more than Canada does or certainly yeah. Ontario does. Yeah. So I think how I view the world is as government, we need to look at all best practices. We then have to look at the resources and the systems we have. And wherever there's opportunity to, again, accessibility, timely access, treatment and care, and more proactive, then why would we not do that? And, exactly. and that's where the big monolithic machine of government if it's been going in a direction for 50 years, you don't just turn it totally on a dime tomorrow. No. But you can start making those incremental changes. Mm -hmm. And you also have to bring on those those people, the, the public servants, who have been going down a path and understand why they're so adamant about going down. Yeah. And as I, I used an example of uh, home care, so I'm a big proponent. It's, it's much cheaper. It's much more cost-effective. It's, it's much more Absolutely. timely. It's much more... It's people, for people, for the most part, want to be in their homes. And I, and yeah. I buy that. But that, to me, also has a qualifier. Not everybody can be in your home. Mm -hmm. No. You know, there are obviously, as you would know much better than I, there are people who are going to need to be in a hospital or a long-term care facility or, or whatever that, that facility may be. But if you just do generic sampling and, and polling and say, do you want to stay in your home? Well, 99.9% .9 of us are going to say yes because that's where we're most comfortable. Yeah. Nobody but what are the realities? And if you qualify that and say, you're going to be in your own home, but you're only going to get one hour of care a week, does that change your answer to that? Yeah. Or if someone needs to be on a life-saving machine that can't be in your home because who, again, as the caregiver, can, can actually be there with you yeah. and operate that. So, you know, I think all those have to be put through filters that are pragmatic and saying, what's the reality of that? Yeah. But I know the government of today is saying health, home care is really where the focus needs to be. I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. But are you resourcing it properly? Mm -hmm. What are you doing? And then go back to your, to your hospitals who are, who are given funding based on an old mindset, right? Yeah. And, and again, they're actually penalized if there aren't as many patients in their care. Well, again, the whole idea is to get you out of hospital and back home if that's what, what's the possibility. So I just think this whole thing has to be recalibrated to look at the efficiencies and, and, and most importantly, the care given to the people, whether it be at home or in a facility. Yeah, definitely. That sums up our thoughts exactly, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so how do you, because you, you, know, you look after Gray Bruce and Owen Sound, how do you see long-term care, elder care, and home care working in your community right now? So again, always always a mixture. So I, I think there's really good pockets of wonderful care, wonderful service. Uh, the biggest thing we probably still have is, is the ability to get people into a facility that is needed. And again, I think we have situations in our own backyard. Uh, sometimes government uses, again, old, outdated stats. And they say, you know, they'll, they'll set a ratio of however many over a thousand or X, Y, Z age. And you're well capacity, have good capacity to serve that now. But we know there are more and more seniors moving to our area. We know that yes. there's an exodus coming from the urban areas to a place like ours. Yeah, so absolutely. just because we meet that criteria today, I again think you have to be visionary to be looking at five and 10 and 20 years down the road saying we need to prepare for that. So I think we have pockets where people are on wait lists and they're on wait lists much too long. Yeah. We have areas where people are in facilities, whether it be the hospital that shouldn't be there, they should be in long-term care, but there isn't a bed for them to go to. So I now you're that. backing up both <laughs> systems. You yeah. have people, I think, that that uh, again, uh, cohabilitating, so, so two, two spouses. One needs that, that long-term care level of care, the other doesn't. 
and we don't always allow them. So they've lived together for 55 years and now we separate them in the time yeah, that they actually need awful. to be there. So those type of things, and that's not just to Bruce Grayland Sound, that's across yes, the province because yes. I am critic for yes. long-term care and I've traveled the province. So I, I think there's always that. And then I think the other piece is, is again, that continuum of care. So how do we make the system, uh, how do we allow the system and, en- and engage the system? So you, you start with some home care and then as your s- situation uh, declines in most cases as we get older, then you move into more of a retirement care and how we fund those uh, to, again, be almost a spectrum of care. And I think yeah. many of our, particularly in small rural areas, our operators are quite prepared to operate a continuum of care mm-hmm. if the funding model fits. And again, mm-hmm. one of your questions was about funding, and that's yeah. where I have real challenges, where in many cases, hospitals, schools, long-term care, we're using antiquated formulas yeah. and models that don't meet today's current needs. So I think we can go to some of those operators in our own backyard, and again, very similar across the province because we're not unique in that way, and say, why wouldn't we add 30 retirement homes so you now have a transitional ability and know that at least that, that uh, spouse can be in the same general vicinity, mm-hmm. doesn't need the care, doesn't need to pay, or could co-pay however they want to do that. I mean, my mother-in-law right now is in the early stages of dementia, and her husband is the caregiver. So they're in a retirement home. He's expecting 24-7 care, yeah. right? And he needs the respite to be able to get proper sleep. Yeah. Yeah. But to put her into a long-term care facility without some kind of a, a situation where he could cohabitate with her, then they're split up again. And, yeah. and the funding be worse for her. It'll be absolutely, worse. Absolutely, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah. and, and it's worse for him, frankly, because, again, yeah. now he's getting, he's getting uh, worn out because he's doing that care in the middle of the night. Uh, not, not you know, he hasn't been trained for it as yeah. none of us are really as spouses. Um, so I think again that whole piece, and and there's really good models at times, and there and and we have wonderful operators around. But it's again that scope of care, what we want to do, back to PSWs and the level of things that they can do. Uh, there, there's a there's a new, it's not a new regulation, but it's it's within the act that they just more start to enforce a lot more that you have to have a 24/7 RN in any facility. Yeah. Well, in some of our smaller facilities, again, we have one in, in Chatsworth that we've, we've been working on. They actually let five PSWs go who were providing frontline care, knew the patient, had that relationship to bring in a 24-7 RN. And because we don't, again, in a rural area have as much uh, opportunity and, and resourcing, they brought people in on a contract from an urban area. It's a didn't know the patient, was here for two solid days and then gone again. Aww. So, you know, yes, the act says, and yes, they were going to be in non-compliance. But I spoke with one of the, the physicians, ironically, that, that has uh, his mom out there. You know, for years, this has worked with a physician oversaw it. The RN was within 10 minutes on a phone call to be able to do this. And it's a much smaller home than, again, some of the numbers project at the government level. But it was working, and the patients got the care they needed. Right. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Correct. And, and that, that act, I'm sure, was well-intentioned because, yes, mm-hmm. you know, I certainly value an RN. And the RNs, I'm sure, will not want to hear me say... We should do that, but in a, in an area like ours where there's some resourcing challenges and rural needs and realities, we have to be flexible enough to amend that to make it again back to patient care. What's that patient getting? So, all of this type of thing I think has to have a continuum of care, and we have to be thinking like I, I can't remember if we talked about this in the podcast or before. Uh, you know, just that whole trending of how many people do we need in each occupation, and and be looking to the future, not using stats from two or five years ago to say you're over. Right. Right. Overcapacity, yeah. right? There's, well, no, we're there not. Has to be, we need to be pre- able to project yeah. and and accommodate based off the projections. And so, is our, you know, is that a realistic thing that could be accomplished? Uh, you know, to to have a very fluid 
regulation regulation that allows each individual communities to do what they need best for that community. I mean, is that a, re- a realistic thing? I, I sincerely believe yes. Yeah. I, I will qualify again. The, the challenging government is you you get caught from the community, frankly, from the people, from the public, wanting, and they use the words equity or equality. So whether you live in Owen Sound or you live in Toronto, you want the same level of care for you, your mm-hmm. family. But that, again, becomes daunting because then that restricts you in the creativity and the flexibility. And again, as I used, you know, extreme northern Ontario where you're 300 miles from the next community, are you really able to have the exact same care as you would in downtown Toronto? Probably not. And I'm not saying you should expect less or you should receive less, but I think how it's delivered mm-hmm. has to give you some flexibility. You have to be more creative. But as a politician, you're held to that because why doesn't my grandma get the same care in tapas casing as they do in downtown Toronto? Why does she, do, she or he deserve less, right? So, so I think there is as long as mm-hmm. we put, in my mindset, again, and this is where the value of being in government and understanding why they've set certain things the way they are, mm-hmm. you know, can we follow kind of a minimum standards and then give you the flexibility so that in a rural area you might have not a 24-7 RN in every single facility, but three facilities share one and there's a 10-minute or 12-minute response time, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. And again, I would go to the front line. I would go to people like yourselves and those nurses and say, is this realistic? Can you provide the value of care? And I always use the example, that's your mom in a bed. Would you accept this as good care for your mom if you could could agree to these terms and conditions? Mm-hmm. And forget sometimes the the sticking so much to the strictness of, of an act and the words equality or equity because I think they can they can be used politically, but I'm not certain from a practical reality that they actually serve us as people the best way. So mm-hmm. so yes, I do think it's possible. I think it's a mind shift, and and again that's. Until I've been in government, it's tough to really understand how easy and quickly that can be. I will tell you that government's very slow. slow. Uh, There are a lot of calls. There are a lot of cross-ministry things again. So an act sometimes in health can have a ripple effect in another ministry, or vice versa, that you're again fighting amongst those. So I think, again, the the pragmatic approach would be to get uh, all of the various people in a room that are going to be impacted and have the discussion. Mm-hmm. And, and I took lean training when I worked at Bruce Power. And you know, lean, really, the simplistic view is to take any process, doesn't matter what it's in, whether it's an industry or healthcare, uh, recreation, doesn't matter, and get all of the people that have a piece of that process and get them all in the room and then see where there are inefficiencies. And, and, and that doesn't mean cutting something out. That means moving it out and utilizing that person in a much better capacity. And I use yeah. you as a prime example. Where do you fit? in the health process and are there efficiencies that you can bring to the table from timely access to to freeing up that physician that that general practitioner in an area like ours where they can take the more acute cases perhaps and you do the the more generic if you will because again i use my example of my mom i don't think it really mattered to her whether it was a nurse practitioner or the doctor right she she probably had a bit of a mindset to say the doctor's always historically been at the top of the of of the hierarchy and and it probably always will be but I think there's a role for physicians and nurse physician assistants and nurse practitioners, uh, and the R. I mean, again, I'm I'm a big big proponent of the nurses and what they yeah, carry and the responsibility yep. and their scope again, right? So rather than putting an RPN versus an RN versus a physician or a nurse, should be looked at that way. Yeah. Should be looked how at do, how do we say how do you work manner. as a team? Exactly. Right? And focus where you need to be focused, and and forget the territorialism. And, exactly. and again, that's not as easy because yep. there are very strong thoughts of those areas and, and those various professions. And I get that and I say, but if you bring them into the table and say, using my 80-20, okay, 80% of the dollars, we, we can't ever 
it's not realistic to think we could ever spend 80 cents of every dollar just in healthcare. No. So how do we keep it at, at a realistic, reasonable uh, expectation and level? And that means everybody coming to the table collaboratively and saying, how do I chip in here and how do I step back sometimes and say, I'll, I'll forgo this to allow you. But it doesn't mean less people in the industry. It's how we utilize it. It's yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Because everybody has their skill set. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we're all here to do the same job, which is to help patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Nobody works. goes into healthcare for any other reason other than they want to help patients. Like Absolutely. Like, we have the same goal, and so we can work collaboratively. We will be in agreement yeah. on that. And that's where the systems, I think, some over history, over you know agreements, that, that again, we're, we're made at a different time with a different mindset. But but as our role, and I mean, one of the things that you'll know, again, much better than I, the acuity level, particularly of our senior seniors, right, are, are needing more resources, more time, more effort. Uh, I look at the PSWs in our long-term care facilities on the night shift. And I, I mean, they're, they're running at warp speed. Yeah. And to your point, they all get into it because they care about people. But yeah. one of the things that, I, that I've actually found in the last year from visiting a lot of facilities is that that's one of the biggest challenges for them to do is staffing with PSWs. And, and again, it's I'll use a term that may sound partisan, but an unintended consequence of the minimum wage loss. Hmm. So that PSW who's making 15 or $16 now with whatever number, 28 patients to take care of on a, on a night shift, and they're kind of their own on their own with people with a lot of challenges, particularly dementia and Alzheimer's and all of those types of things, are saying, I can go and work somewhere else where I have no, nowhere close to the same responsibility. I, I work Monday to Friday type of thing, and I can make my 15 bucks an hour minimum wage now. Mm-hmm. So even if they're making $17, $18, they're saying from a lifestyle and from the stress and the pressure. It's not worth it. That's not, that extra few dollars isn't worth yeah. it, maybe. So, so again, that was one thing that not having been on the government side and understanding, did they really do their homework to, to, to look at that? Did they really look at these types of areas where there could be unintended consequence? And if you didn't, why didn't you? Mm-hmm. Because it's not a big stretch if you'd have surveyed people that someone would have said, hey, I'm a, I'm a PSW or whatever the occupation I'm not staying here if you make it that, that kind of way. Right, and then the place that they're at, would they be able to incre- incrementally increase that their wage in accordance with... Correct. Yeah, like did those long-term increase? care homes get extra money to pay those no, they did not. more right. no. and they did because it. of the minimum wage increase? Correct. No, no. And, and that's their struggle. Or what will happen, and I try again not to be overly quiet, but what the cynical side says, so interesting, we're in an election year. Oh, we're going to give $822 million more to the hospitals this year in an election year, but they've been frozen for five years. Well, your hydro's gone up, your collective agreements have gone up, so that hospital budget has been going up with no more money, right. and now you throw a Band-Aid approach yeah. for a year. Well, what happens in three years? Because those collective agreements are going to go up. They haven't addressed hydro, so those costs are going to go up. So that's where I say we really have to generically and holistically look at the whole system. And when you make those type of decisions, uh, whether it be hospitals or long-term care facilities, Community and social services. Community living is one of the groups yep. that, again, are going to be hugely impacted yeah. by this. Yeah. Uh, they've been capped, I think, many of them for 10 years at the same revenue levels from the government. And honestly, those PSW jobs, they're so hard. Those they're absolutely. That, that frontline work is heavy work. It kills your back. So heavy. You know, it, it is hard work. Absolutely. Yeah. Holy, they, they deserve a lot of respect for absolutely. what they do. Yeah. And, and I think, again, to your, to your exact point, I mean, I look at most people... Because, uh, again, in a small community, you get to know a lot of people. You have a lot of friends that work in various capacities. They truly get into it because of care and compassion. Yeah. But then the reality sets in and says, holy smokes, you know, I'm, I'm raising a family. I'm mm-hmm. out working my, my, my butt off. 
uh, I'm not making a lot of money, and again, can I keep this up? And, yeah. and, and at your early ages, we all have much more energy, but as you get older, again, can I keep up this pace? Can I do the physical lifting? Can I do that physical shift as well as I could before on the same level? So yeah. uh, that's where I say uh, the whole system, as, as a politician, as you get out more, and, and you know, I asked for the long-term care because I just didn't think the government, and frankly, I didn't think our party or the NDP were doing uh, enough in long-term care. That, yeah. that, and I mean, we all know the baby boom's coming at us. So uh-huh. again, uh, from a government perspective, I would have expected walking, regardless of political strife, that you would have known that, you would have done the trending, you would have actually started to move your systems and your yeah. particularly funding formulas to address that. And they haven't. And if no. you talk to the Ontario Long-Term Care Association or the Ontario Retirement Communities Association, they'll all tell you the same thing. Like mm-hmm. we're under we're under duress to keep the, the level of expectation of, of the patient and their caregivers, their family, their loved ones. Uh, but, the, but the dollars haven't stayed with us. No, yeah. and not only have they not stayed with it, but obviously reimbursement for physicians is going down. Reimburse, like there's been significant cuts that are impacting frontline staff and patients. No yes. doubt. And the other thing is, I mean, this is more specific to your writing, but like working in a small hospital, I feel like the, I don't know, because I've not worked at a big city hospital, but those cuts and those freezes for little hospitals are really hard for yeah. us. Absolutely. Like at South Bruce Gray, to, when there's no increase in funding, but the costs of running the hospital are going up, and they're, you know, you have to keep your within such and such a budget because that's all you have. How do you do that without cutting when wages are your biggest cost? How do you do that without affecting patient care by, you know exactly. what I mean? Like, yeah. Well, I think patient care, but I think also staff care. Staff yeah. care. Because I yeah. believe you then put more burden on yourself. You mm-hmm. become more stressed. I mean, I yeah. think stats will always show you that as that continues, there's more time off work, there's more sick days, which again, now you're having to pay out of another area to, to duplicate, right? So yeah. again, it goes back to my mindset of recreation. Let's be proactive and preventative. Let's think about those things. Let's do yeah. the training. One of the really interesting things I found becoming the critic for long-term care and seniors uh, we have no mandatory geriatric training. Everybody going through the system still has to have mandatory pediatric. And we know our birth numbers are much lower than they were 50 years ago. Our geriatric numbers are way up, but we've never changed even something as simplistic as that. Yeah, so that basic fundamental training type of thing. And, and I wanted to go, if I can, back to your, your kind of last comment. So whether we think of a hospital or long-term care, it doesn't really matter what the facility. The government borrowed $25 billion to announce the Fair Hydro Act. So everyone's going to feel good because, yes, your hydro bill has gone down since since last year. But in two years, the Auditor General has pointed, and they're an independent officer of the legislature. They've got no partisanship. They're not connected to any of our parties. They said you're going to get a, a, a decrease for two years, but the rates are going up. And nothing in the budget that was just released three weeks or four weeks ago actually addresses the systemic challenges with the cost of hydro. So they borrowed $25 billion. It's going to cost between 43 and $93 billion. So our kids and grandkids are being saddled with that debt. And yet there's no money going into things like funding of hospitals and long-term care other than, and not that $822 million isn't a good thing for our hospitals, yep. but why all of a sudden now? And what happens in two years? Is that right. going to be a continued? Because yep. as you pointed out, the, the, the cost continued to increase. Uh, and you don't want to get into a case of rationing or taking... Uh, missteps within our system because you can't afford it. And, and most importantly, it comes back to our staffing. I have had the pleasure when I was with the hospital foundation to really get to know a lot of the, the frontline care, particularly the nurses. Yeah. And you know that they are very experienced. They're doing things that if you came in as a first year 
graduate, you would never have an idea of all the things that they do in an efficient manner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you lose that 25 or 30 year veteran who's figured all of that out and even at that advanced time of their career can still keep up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The new people coming up are going, I didn't even know that you could do those three different types of things, right? Yeah. So I also feel like every physician should have to spend like a day or two like shadowing a nurse as part of <laughs> their training. Part of their training. Just to see because it's sort of, I don't know, as a physician assistant, you're sort of in between. So you mm. see sort of both, both sides, worlds sure. more in depth, at least in my experience. I see, you know, so much of what the nurses do and I see so much of what the doctors do, but it would be really... I feel like every medical student should have to spend like a couple shifts, like just shadowing and watching an RN or an RPN and seeing what they do. Mm-hmm. I think they would, well, A, they would learn a lot, but B, I think they would have a more, a better appreciation for that role. We, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with you, Rachel. I think that sometimes working in the medical field can be actually really competitive and we would serve ourselves as well as our patients better to be more collaborative. But at the, you know, speaking to that, when we're, the way we're, you know, off our conversation here, the way we're funding everything does tend to put us, funding and regulating things does tend to almost force us into a competitive nature Mm. between the professions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because when we have our, you know, overriding organizations and colleges arguing with each other and, arguing over, well, this person should be allowed to this, but not this. I mean, there's reality is there's overlap of all these professions and skill levels. And yeah. if we could collaborate more, it, we would absolutely be in a better position. Yeah. And you raise a really good point to your one of your earlier questions. Is this really realistic to do? And that's one of the challenges because you don't ever want to, particularly as a politician, say I'm going to not be as stringent on what the requirements and the standards and the level of, of care are. But over time, no, regulation not. keeps getting in, uh, added and encroaches on your time to physically be with the patient because you're filling out more paperwork. Mm-hmm. So again, a recalibration <laughs> of saying, what's really valued? And I think, again, I'm a big believer in bringing the people at the front lines on the continuum of care and saying, what's, and again, using that example, this is your mom yeah. sitting in that bed, yeah. laying in that bed. What are the levels of care that we can all agree are acceptable? You have to have reporting and you have to have standards of care yeah. that are being Met. complied to. Yeah. Absolutely. But you but you can't keep adding. And, and again, the public has to play a role in this because as, as users of the system, beneficiaries of the system, we have high levels of, of expectation. Mm-hmm. And then we put it back to you. You have to have that ticky box because you've got to protect yourself yeah. in case something ever happens, which sadly can, even with the best. I mean, we are human. Yeah. We, we do human. make errors. So that's the challenge, again, as a politician and or a bureaucrat to say, how do you find that sweet spot of balance that there's enough reporting, but not making the system be driven by reporting? And I, and I see much more now. It was interesting, again, in my long-term care, one person who had worked on the compliance side of things said in the in the early part of her career, the culture was more of a coaching. We walk into a facility, we do our, our inspection, and we actually say, how can we help you to get to here? Because there are things that aren't being done as well as they could. Now it's more of that inspector, and I'm a policeman, policewoman, uh, perspective of, gotcha. Yeah. We caught you doing something wrong, you've got two weeks to do it, or we find you. Very In a system where you're already feeling that you haven't had enough funding increases in the last number of years, now you're going to be punitive and find me $10,000 in a budget that's already been flatlined. What What is that really doing for the patient care level? Yeah. right? And then as a staff person who's already, again, in my mind, running at warp speed, you've demoralized that person yeah. again because rather than saying, how can I help you find the solution and get yeah. you there, 
you're you're now putting that adversarial punitive mindset. Yeah. So culturally, again, I think that's leadership of government to change that back the other way, saying we want a coaching environment. We want the people at the front line to come and say, how do we skin this cat? How do we make yeah. sure we can get to the goal we want? Never compromising on patient care, obviously. Yeah. But we also have to set some realities of what we can expect unless you're going to, as, as a populist, say, I want more care. Well, then... It either has to come from more money. It's going right? to come somewhere. Um, and we talked about that. Money does not grow on trees. or no. I certainly haven't found the tree. I keep looking. Uh, uh, you know, so everybody, everybody, and I, I did a, I did an interview on CBC right after the, the uh, Liberal budget. And mm. I said again, you know, nothing in life is free. Someone's paying for this. So even saying something like the Liberals have said, free meds uh, and free uh, uh, dental yeah. for seniors. Well, if you read the detail, it's up to $600 for a couple. So if you have any major dental work or you have it any... It doesn't cover. That covers needs, a cleaning yeah, and a cleaning. checkup. Yeah. yeah. But it says free, free dental care, free meds for seniors. Well, if you just read the headline, you're thinking, what a great thing. Yeah. The spin on it is really good. Absolutely. And I, yeah. And I mean, but I mean, seniors, once you're over the 65, the amount you pay for your drugs is, is not that much. Right. And if you're low income, I think that, you Dude, know, there's are subsidies yes, for yes. that, right? So... I mean, I think having a pharmacare program is a great idea because then we have the ability as a province, even if we just had provincial pharmacare, to negotiate. Right. Like that's, if you're going to a drug company and saying, I have, you know, X million number of patients, you got, got, you got a big bargaining chip, sure, sure. right? Yeah, right. But to say, oh, you know, it's not a big bargaining chip to be like, oh, we'll cover drugs for, you know, people under the age of 20. They don't use... They don't use yes. drugs. They don't use drugs. <laughs> you know, the cost of amoxicillin yeah. for the kid yeah. with the ear infection, most, you know, I mean, there are exceptions. There are, there are, there are sick exceptions. Kids, there are but sick like, children, but the majority of them are not sick. Whereas you look at, you know, as... as Obviously, the older population, the majority of them are on multi, multi drug therapy yeah. and expensive drugs. Yeah. Expensive, and then there's this patient population in between when they're not covered at all, and if they suddenly get diabetes or they're suddenly you know in a position of a cancer scenario, and you don't have coverage, this is a problem. Absolutely. You know, I mean. Yes, if you have cancer, in general, we cover chemotherapy that's given IV, but you're certainly limited on what's available and what's been approved here. And then on top of that, all the drugs that you take home, they're not covered at all. You yes. need anti-nauseas? Well, it's $20 a pill, and you're going to take eight of them a day. You know, And they add, it adds up. So I agree with you. We need some kind of method of not just diagnosing patients, but also treating them. And we don't really have that. And what the current government has put out is really band-aids that aren't going to cover much. Yes, and, that, and that's where I think, again, as politicians of any stripe, we should be coming to the table saying, what is the... I look at every dollar as an investment. Mm -hmm. If I put it here, what do, I, what do the people that I serve realize? Yeah. What do they get at the end of the day? If I put it here, what do they get? And something as simplistic as take-home cancer drugs. Other provinces have been doing it. Again, the efficiency is the ability for you to take your own rather than having to go in and do that in the most costly form of healthcare we have is is crazy from my perspective. So yeah, why would the other option is you come into the hospital and we give it to you there. Exactly, that's what exactly. I mean. So Which why is what we do. But, but why do you need to do that, right? You're to, to give me a pill Prevent if it. I'm able to, stuff. right? Yes. So there's other things you're not getting to now to be able to do that. So that's where I again say we need to recalibrate. We need to have the frontline people using that kind of lean mentality. And even, even in our platform, like our leader Doug has said I'll find 4%. Well, those are the type of things. It's not hard to think of specifics of each occupation saying I can find four percent that's practical yeah right yeah uh, because there are something as simple as that the other thing I found out with drugs not not necessarily just to long-term care but we actually as a province in many cases put the companies through two more years of stringent testing 
even though the federal government has approved it and Saskatchewan patients are receiving it. Now, why in Ontario would we ever, because now that person's potentially two years sicker, mm -hmm. their, their, their symptoms have got worse, their acuity's got worse. So again, I, I, I shake my head at those type of things going, and that's not the company being bad. They're right. saying to me, we want to sell, we want to provide to yeah. you. You're the biggest population base we have. Yeah. Your government actually says, no, we can't do business with you for another two years. Well, oh, why wouldn't we change that? What? That to yeah, me is like something Health Canada's so done the research and said it's fine at the federal level. That right. should be sufficient. Well, especially if someone in, in Saskatchewan, whatever province, <laughs> is getting it. If another province So if you have a sister there and, and you've yeah. got the same symptoms and she's getting it two years ahead of you, how, so how can we accept that? Does, does the current ministry, how often are they con consulting frontline workers? Are they bringing many of them into the conversation or is this really a conversation of you know, administrators and big heads talking about something they don't actually see. I can't really answer that because, again, yeah, I'm you're not, not on that government. side. You're so not on so that I, side. What, I, what I do think I'm comfortable to say, and it's realistic, is I believe they're lobbied by, you know, certainly I know Doris Grimspoon from the RNAO is, is in front of the mm -hmm. government fairly regularly. So, you know, she's representative of the front line, uh, certainly the OMA. I mean, almost every group, I'm sure, has at least some time in front of them. Yeah. But what I can tell you on a much more broader when you see some of the policies that have been implemented in certainly my six years, what you hear from the frontline stakeholder is we weren't consulted or we were we had a meeting, mm. but they didn't actually take any of what mm -hmm. we said or, or much of what we said. And that's why I use that term unintended consequences because okay. to me you say, if you actually met with those people, why would you go down some of the paths that you've gone down? So, so an, an interesting one right now, nothing to do with healthcare really, although it has an impact, are, are small little independent grocery stores. So they've had huge, huge increases in their energy bills. And think oh, of a grocery right, store. Right, right, of course. Think of how much energy hydro, they, yeah, they like have with their freezers and everything else they have. So the government came out and said, we're going to give a 25% uh, rebate. But those small, medium, particularly the individually owned, or, 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 or they may be part of a franchise, but they're very much independent, they don't qualify. So the rates have gone up two, three hundred percent. They don't qualify. They don't qualify because they don't actually consume as much as they put a cap on, oh. and they consume way more than what the bottom level is. So they're caught in the middle, the going the small business owners. But, but my costs keep going up. Right. It is the sm that's the small, small business, business owner, owner who's feeding their family at home that you want to support. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. they're carrying the debt. They're carrying so so then Bill One Forty Eight comes in, and I'm not opposed to the minimum wage increase if it again had it been done properly consulted. What I'm hearing from most, not just the grocery stores, but many many small businesses. How do I incur a 33% increase? Yeah. It gets passed on back to you, or I, you know, what many of them are saying is I'm laying people, I'm cutting their hours back. Well, is that really benefiting us as a, as a pro, or even the individuals, if you're right. getting less hours but a couple bucks more? And, and do it in a, in a, again. BC was going to go and do it all at once, and they went back and said, over five years, we'll do this. So mm -hmm. had they consulted truly and, and listened as a government to those small independent businesses, mm -hmm. I think they would have done that. But I think, sadly, it's become, we're going to do this because they know for many people, they're going to say, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to get a three-buck increase. The other unintended consequence is the person who's making $20 now. Well, if your colleague's going from 11 and to you 14 don't yeah. So, mm -hmm. and, and where's the value in that? So I'm now a much more valuable producer. Uh, an interesting one that happened, I just read about the other day, they've actually came in now and said, for groups, again, like community living, uh, there's a young man, I can't think of his name, uh, he, he went and did a very specific task every day and they gave him $5 at the end of each day in, in reward for that. Now he can't have that job because if he's doing it, he has to be paid $14 an hour. Well, where does community living who have been capped at $10, or at, for 10 years find that $14 an hour? Mm -hmm. So now this person actually doesn't have that sense of 
worth of doing that job, that they're very well positioned. And, and even the mom said, he can't produce, I can't remember what the young man's name, let's just call him Johnny. Johnny can't produce because of, of the challenges that he has, his special needs. He can't produce at the level of someone who's, who doesn't have those special needs. Can. Right. So he, he shouldn't actually ever be thought that he should be able to produce at the $14. No. And, and Johnny was quite happy to get his $5 and buy whatever he wanted at the end of the night, feel good about himself, have that social... Now he, he physically can't do that. Wow. But where does, that, where does that. little Johnny go now? What does little Johnny do? My gut would be that he's going to become much more... Uh, lethargic. Isolated. He's going to be isolated. He's not going to be feeling as good about himself. And and, I mean, that then to me leads to all kinds of other repercussions that are going to cost our system collectively. So, you know, it sounds good that everybody should be paid whatever the dollar amount is. But there's situations there again that by being too restrictive and not really thinking it through and consulting people at the front line, that Johnny is actually getting a negative negative income. And now he's lost his job. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I hadn't even considered that. that so those are the type of things as a legislator, you kind of go, hmm, yeah, so we should have thought about that. And, you know, there's all kinds of examples, again, with our small businesses that I just, I, I keep hearing over and over. And the people running the businesses aren't saying, I don't want to pay my people. Like, it's again, you, you can yeah. take examples of the really big corporations that sometimes you read about in the paper. Yeah. But most corporations, most businesses, and particularly in a place like Bruce Gray on Sound, are the people that you and I walk yeah. up and see yeah. each day. That they Yes, they want to do well because... That's what they've got into business for. But they also give money back to our hospitals and to all the other charities. If they're not making as much money, there's less money going into our social systems and our philanthropic ability. So then what do people do? They turn to government and say, well, we're not raising enough money at the hospital to replace all the equipment. Government is coming back to you now. So now you go to taxation, right? So again, it's just a, I think more holistically that let's think about what the repercussions are going to be of each decision and try to find a way to work again with all of the stakeholders and say, here's the challenge. How do we get down the road five years? So where do we move from here? You know, when we talk, most of our audience are other PAs and they're practicing and we want to see some of these changes. We want to be involved. We don't know how to do that. And quite frankly, most of us are a bit intimidated Mm -hmm. at the prospect of reaching out to our representatives. Sometimes we don't even, you know, don't get responses and things. So what, how do we do that? Give us a a walk. Well, a couple things, I guess. One, first and foremost, I think what you've done is very effective and and you've done a really good job because first and foremost, you came in uh, without demands. You came in and educated me so that I knew much more about your profession and understood the value. I think whenever you can put something, and I, and I tell all groups this, do it in a one-pager, because if you give me the 30-page <laughs> document, it's never getting read because I have thousands of them. But, but you need, for, for a guy like me at least, you, you need to give me the big picture. You need to show me what the value that you bring to the system, uh, how you can improve, and how, again, it's always focused on outcomes for the patient who you're yeah. serving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think be very dogged in people that don't return your calls. And I think you, A, obviously go back to them and keep asking. But that's where it does come down to election time. If someone isn't going to give you the time of day to even listen to you and try to right. find improvements, are they really different with any other occupation? Yeah. So why won't they answer? Right. Um, yeah. I think, again, having good stats that, like I was saying earlier, you know, understanding trends of an occupation and where are, more importantly, from where the people are going to be mm-hmm. meeting, but then how your occupation fits in, yeah. keeping, keeping each of us individually aware. So it's great that Bill Walker has at least opened his doors to you, but all of my colleagues, right? You yeah. want all oh, of them have. to be engaged I, like I, me. Yes, I do have to very much say that your office has been very responsive, Wonderful. and uh, probably if we had, when the first time we had emailed you, if we had not heard back, I 
I think I may we may have backed off mm. and and not been dogged like you right, say right. and been persistent because we're already from coming from a bit of an intimidated mm. standpoint. So your office has been wonderful, but if you did if you hadn't been, I don't know if we would have had the confidence and confidence to continue pushing yeah. to get through that door. So so uh, and, and I use dogged in a good way. By yes, the way. yes, um, yes. So be dogged because again the other reality for us is if you think of how many occupations and how many challenges yes. there are, if you don't call me back the second time, many of us just because we're fairly busy, yes. uh, you just kind of go, okay, that wasn't obviously a big issue, and I'm on to putting out the next fire because somebody's yep. always banging on your door. So yep. um, I, I'm not certain how to share with you how to be. To, to not deem us as intimidating, because I think most of us, frankly, are of all stripes. Um, you know, we get into it like people into healthcare. We get into it because we want to make a difference. Yeah. So yeah. what we need to, um, I think, is, is hopefully our culture is that our job is to serve you. Our mm-hmm. job is to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you don't get a, a yes the first time, don't take that as a negative or as an absolute no. It could be, again, you got lost a, in the system, a craziness busy, of scheduling, yeah. whatever the case may be. But... Uh, you know, and, and to your to your credit, and you came in in a very on the upside. You weren't threatening. You weren't coming in demanding. You were actually giving me good knowledge. And you may sit back as a professional, think, well, everybody must know about this, right? But again, think of all the things in a, in a, in my life that I have to know about. Uh, so if I haven't had, and I say this to many groups, if you haven't had someone in your family, whether it be a, a special drug that they need or or a special needs child, mm-hmm. you don't really have the same sense until someone comes in with that and shares it in front of me. So as a physician assistant, I think, you know, you, I think what you shared with me is you don't have the numbers of many of the other occupations, right? So you may deem yourself even to be a a small player, but I look at it and say, but if you're at the table, the piece that you can play in that process could be as important as the doc or the RN. Mm -hmm. And and it shouldn't be about hierarchical. It shouldn't be about numbers. It should Mm -hmm. be about how do we get the best care for that patient in every single situation yeah. and build into our system again some of that? And, and that's not as easy as I'm making it sound. Build in that flexibility that different, different even ridings can be different. So even yeah. within our LINS system, yeah. you will hear really good experiences with LINS and you'll hear really bad. And you're going, well, how does that work? Now, is that because we gave some too much flexibility and they, they went in a wrong direction? So again, how do you as a government official keep it so that you, you, you can... Controlling is a terrible word, but you can manage, uh, you know, the the sphere of what they can do, but not stifle creativity. And right. it's something I think is really a challenging government that, because we are so driven by regulation and uh, and and the act, we actually stifle creativity and innovation. Mm-hmm. So how do we again open that up without losing? And I don't, again, I don't like the word control, but losing the ability to keep some confines so people can't go off and do things that are going to have real bad unintended yeah. consequences. Yeah, no, you need to have keep a basic the accountability. Minimum. You need to have some accountability there, exactly. We need yeah. to be meeting minimum standards yes. of care. And, and that's where I go. If, if I bring everybody who's touching that patient and we all use the focal point, if that's your mom and my mom in that mm-hmm. chair, mm-hmm. would you agree to this? Yeah. Right? And yeah. come to a standardized mindset that, again, you can flex up. So in certain cases, if you say... For example, diabetes. If we want to go three steps above that, is, is what the people of Bruce Gray on Sound have collectively kind of said, then, then allow us to do that. But here's the absolute. So mm-hmm. you get back again, I think that you can say the person in Capus Casing versus someone in downtown Toronto versus someone in Owen Sound or Tobermory has at least the same minimum care. Yeah. If you want to then ratchet it up because of whatever ability, uh, and again, you'll get negative there because, well, some people can buy more. Some people have more affluence, right? And and we get into yeah. that with school situations. Some some schools in the cities have all kinds of stuff because people are more affluent and can put into it. Is that fair? Well, it, that's, a, that's a balancing and that's yeah. a philosophical mindset. Yeah. But I think as long as everybody gets the, the minimum level, 
then we at least have a starting point that we can all agree and and much more feedback from people around the table who are truly impacting the patient outcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it needs to be flexible to the area, right? Like, there are certain issues in CAFAS casing that are not going to be the same issues in Toronto, and so you need to be able to be flexible in that, you know, they may need these special services and these people may need these other special services, and it has to be flexible that way as well. Absolutely. With something as simple as you saying working in a small rural hospital, I mean, you become, in my mind, a family. So you yep. know and have a trust level, yeah. right? And, and I'm not saying the regulation of having a, an RN 24-7 isn't a good ideal and intention, but if you don't have the physical resources and you're bringing something in from the outside, from a temporary contract agency who has no connection with your family, then even you as a practitioner start to go, hmm, I really don't know how that person works. Do they think differently? Do they come from a whole different mindset of yep. a big hospital as opposed to our small hospital, right? So. The, the ideal and the intent, I'm sure, was correct, mm. but they didn't take any consideration. And the other thing is physical staffing resources. Yeah. We don't just have a 100 extra RNs standing around waiting for someone to call them at, at last minute, right? So, yeah. so now you, again, got rid of five PSWs who are very much entrenched in the system, engaged with the people, know, mostly know each other through hockey and all the other various social things that we do. Uh, so you have a comfort level, and the patient, most importantly, has that comfort because you see the same person day in and day out, as opposed to a stranger coming in who doesn't know the intricacies of if you don't give them this pill at this time, they get agitated. Uh, I toured one, the, the simplistic thing of a Tim Hortons coffee mm-hmm. yep. settled that person right down. Now, who would have ever thought, but that, I think it was a PSW, I can't remember exactly, but... I, know, I have no doubt that it was. Right? Some, no something doubt. as simplistic mm-hmm. as that said, you know what, I've really noticed when he, when he has a Tim Hortons coffee, his mood just comes right, so no meds. Yeah. You know, certainly not restricting and binding. Right. But other mindsets would have guessed, well, that's where we have to go. We have to give them more meds to calm them down. So again, something is simplistic. And look at the money that saved. Yeah. Yeah. And the and and the trauma yeah. that saved. Yeah. But that PSW there being yeah. day and you know, they then got into this is their cycle, this is their world, and picked up on it just like that. Right? Yeah. So there has to be the continuity have, of care. Absolutely. Yeah. So lots of opportunity, lots of challenge, lots of change needed. Yeah. I'm not certain if we've covered everything in what our original questionnaire was, no, but, I, sure. but I think, I think the, so. <laughs> the piece that I, I think I want to leave you with is I think, and it's a credit to you from, for educating me the very first time, is you do have a role to play. Uh, why we don't have the numbers we, we, that you might suggest we could and should have, uh, I can't answer that because, again, I haven't been on the government side, but I think it, it's certainly open to say why haven't we? Have, we? have we actually explored? Have we gone down that path and ever said, why don't we use them more? Why are they only used in, I mean, even in my own backyard, having two of them? Why wouldn't we have 25 of them? Why, why couldn't each facility? And, and again, is that a budgetary restriction? Is that just a, an administrator who isn't favorable or has never used? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think as government, we also always have to be open to any thought is welcome to come through the door. Yeah. And then look at it through that lens of the other providers and say, is there a value here? Yeah. Maybe there won't be a physician assistant in every hospital for whatever reason. Well, but why? I, and I'm not why. saying you're asking yeah, for yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you, you think at some point, if, if it's good enough for, again, Chesley or wherever you, you know, are small, why wouldn't it be good enough in Old right. Sound at the regional? Why wouldn't yeah. it be good enough in, in, in St. Mike's in Toronto? Um, but it may not be. And there may be systems where you say, yeah, it's, it's not going to provide much more value there. So... Let's re- redeploy them to, again, maybe our rural areas where we have more challenge recruiting physicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and we're really lucky. The Conference Board of Canada did this excellent study and yeah. projection for PAs in Canada, and um, which is helpful for us now that we have that so we can we, we can have use, the stats. We, can ha- we have, we have the, the stats. To be we able can to use that to bring that forward. Exactly. We can bring it forward. Well, 
Phil Walker, thank you so much. My pleasure. We really well, appreciate it. Just as a reminder, everybody, that he is in the Owensound Graver's riding. So, and the election is coming up. If for more information on your platform and things, I think it's all on your website. It is, yes. Yeah. Yes. And we'll have a campaign office open next week, and then they can walk in and. And chat, so it's good. Oh, wonderful. I, well, your, your information and your time here is very much appreciated. And we also appreciate your support and community. Wonderful. Thank well, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you for educating. It's great. All right. Cheers. Thank you. Hey, everyone. This is just a heads up that the PA Helpers website is officially going live on June 22nd for early users and beta testers. There will be five spots available for beta testers who will get the whole course for free and then there will be an additional 15 spots for people at an 80% discount so that we can uh, get the site perfected and get some feedback and make the course the best that it can be. Meet the PA's podcast is sponsored by pahelpers.ca where you can find all your Canadian exam prep needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.